0: <laughs> people. Um, good morning, guys. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's so good to be with you. Uh, and actually, this is really fun. This is like you we know, have three more weeks uh, in our current series, which is called Heretics. But basically, we've been, been it more from like we were gonna talk about like heretics and prophets. And the more that I dove into this stuff, and the more that I did it, the more it's become sort of a study of like how can we be people or Christians or followers of Jesus that are actually paying attention to the moment that we're in. So the title heretics at this point is like, why are we still talking about this? Anyway, um, (laughs) but we're studying the moment we're in because so often in church history, big church history, and even in our little church history, we have the capacity, an enormous capacity, to kind of miss what's going on, to walk right by it. Last week we talked about Moses and the burning bush, and the fact that Moses actually interacted with the burning bush was a miracle, not because... The thing was on fire and didn't burn up, but because Moses took the time to actually stand there and witness what was going on. Uh, that was the miracle. That was his choice. He chose to take his shoes off, as the scriptures say, and to enter in to a holy moment. Uh, and so it's, it's been like a huge thing for me in all of this to try and figure out, how, how do we become better at entering into holy moments? And more than that, not just entering in, but how do we become better about actually causing or, or actually crafting? holy moments or intentionally setting aside holy moments. And see, moments uh, are a lot different than minutes. You know that because if anyone has ever said it'll just be one moment, that could be any (laughs) indefined amount of time. right? So a minute is a a chronos time. A a moment is kairos. That means there are two different words for time in the New Testament. And one, chronos, means our chronological time. It's tick, tick, tick on the watch. And then kairos is this deep time, uh, the time that sort of God operates in. So a moment could be anywhere from a conversation to to a job to a career to anything like that. These are the moments that we have in our lives. So how do we become better at sort of calling out that moment and saying this right here, this is holy? And I think to wrap all of this up, so next week, uh, while Mexico is going on, there still will be church here, so please come here if you're not going to Mexico. Uh, But what we're going to talk about is the idea of being sent uh, we'll talk about a couple prophets that had to leave everything and go, uh, and then the next week is the 18th, and on that town hall meeting, I will talk about uh, gratitude, because we're coming into Thanksgiving there, uh, just the, the, the thankfulness I have for this community, and then also what we, what we kind of need to be thankful for and, and revving up for in the next year, and then finally, uh, the next week, we'll start our Sabbath thing, uh, just sort of ending on Jesus sort of coming into the world, uh, and the backstory to that, so before we get to the baby in the manger, what all went on. Um, But to kind of wrap up the whole idea of moments, I think it all comes down to one word, which is stillness. Uh, Stillness is something that as Americans, we, we love the concept of, we hate the interaction with it. So we love to say like, man, I just want a day where I can just do nothing. Doesn't that sound amazing? But then you get in that day where you're doing nothing and like 1 p.m. rolls around and you're like, I feel like a jerk, like <laughs> I haven't done anything today. Uh, and yet actually that stillness is supposed to be built into our lives. It is actually what carries us through. We're designed for stillness. Uh, but a lot of times we're hustling way, way too hard to move forward We're moving too fast. Uh, do you guys remember the crash dummies? I might be the only person that remembers these from the 90s. Um, they even had a, a brief sitcom. Uh, if, every time those crash dummies would hit the wall, uh, they were going 30 miles an hour, which means all of that destruction, all of that chaos, all the stuff like that they'd fly out, be cartoony mess, limbs would go everywhere, all that kind of stuff, that was just at 30 miles an hour. So as we're casually sipping a latte going 80 on the freeway, your propensity to blow yourself up is very real, right? Like so we have, we're moving at such a pace that we could incinerate ourselves, and yet we're calm, cool, and collected and like changing the channel like as we're doing it. We're used to speed. We're used to it so much that it's become sort of like an American virtue. Like If you can get something done faster than someone else, you're the person that's going to rise through the ranks. If we can shorten the time it takes to do a specific little something, then all of a sudden, like, you've got the new thing. I'm going to go to you. We even have entire foods dedicated to the principle of speed, right? How fast can we cook this? How effective is it in my life? And how fast can I move from point A to point B? But at a certain point, it kind of just feels like we're, we're, we're fast forward sleepwalking. I have an amazing propensity to lose where my car is. And I think the reason is, is because every time I park it, I'm on autopilot, right? So I will park the car, not think anything, walk back to the apartment. And then if Chelsea needs to use the car, she'll go, Josh, where's the car? And it, no lie, it will take me like five minutes of like, OK, there are four streets around our apartment. Which one did I come through? Which gate did I come through? <laughs> Going through all the steps, like, yes, I think it's over here. And then she'll call me she's like, it's not here. And they're like, OK, well, plan B. It's probably over here. But I, the, the reason is, is because I get back, I've just sort of zipped through that period. Like that period, parking a car is not fun. Sitting in traffic is not fun. Community is not fun. So what do we do? We fill that space with other things. So I could could tell you about the podcast I was listening to while I parked the car, but I can't tell you where I parked the car, right? We have this beautiful and awesome, because it, it got us a long way, right? Evolutionarily speaking, like that ability to kind of zip through things has what's caused like airplanes in the sky and like radio waves and all this cool stuff, but... There's still the fact that we need to slow it down; otherwise, we're just sort of sleepwalking and missing things all over the place. Now, uh, my wife granted me permission to tell the story. I'm shocked that she did, but it's one of the greatest things ever. Um, Chelsea has has this uh, this thing where if we'll fall asleep watching a movie or something like that, and I will wake her up, uh, she sleepwalks. So I'll wake her up, and she'll raise her eyes. Her eyes are like half open, and I go, "Here we go. This is happening." And I will go, "Chelsea." Uh, It's time for bed. And she'll reply, no. And I'll go, no, it's okay. Like, you can sleep on the couch if you want. But like, I'm going to go to bed. Do you want to come to bed? And she'll go, I'm waiting for Josh. And I'll say, well, I hope so. But what we're going to do is I'm going to take you to bed now. and she will do that, and when she was a kid, this, this stemmed from when she was a really little child, uh, she had this, uh, she would sleepwalk, and like, Lorraine would find her just in their room, like, in the middle of the night, kinda like, wandering around. Uh, but the scariest thing is that she had this stroller with a squeaky wheel, uh, and she would just take this stroller with a baby in it, and like, <laughs> into their bedroom, and they would find her, and there's Chelsea just like, standing there. And that's like, I am, you guys are loving parents, because that's when you just, you're like, nope, not doing it, start over. Um, But that's the way that we can kind of roll through life, is we can just be sleepwalking and and not remembering or not being still enough to take in what's going on. And I will tell you, the most prevalent part about that, in our culture, where we live right now, in Santa Monica, on the West Side, in Los Angeles as a whole, we're really, really bad at wanting to put down roots. And not even just wanting to put them down, I think there's a huge, like, want, like we all want to like buy homes here and that kind of stuff. But it's, it's, it's nearly impossible nowadays. So like it's really hard to actually be still and to put roots down in the moment. Here's what stillness does for us. When we stop, we pay attention, we look around, we actually take advantage of what's really going on in our lives. We're thankful for what we have right here in the moment. Not for that thing that's going to come, not for that, that trip that we've scheduled, but for what's right here. We begin to put roots down in the moment. We begin to actually say, "I'm going to take ownership over the life that I'm living right here, right now." It put it, it's the only thing that puts roots down. This is this is uh, it's really really difficult because we did we did a study in the beginning of resonate. Uh, we did this through like apartments.com, which is a very reputable source, <laughs> and a, a mathematician buddy that I have who's like a, a whiz kid from Berkeley. Uh, but basically, I asked him to help me figure out what the average tenure of, of just sort of a person living, uh, apartment living in the city of Santa Monica. So this just goes for Santa Monica. I don't know the stats for all of Los Angeles. But we figured out, uh, roughly, that the rough estimate is that like, it's a year and a half. A year and a half is how long people will spend living in this city. Which means that if you take a look around you right now, in a year and a half, this room could look drastically different. The friendships that we have could look drastically different. Because this is a space, it's a difficult city to live in, that when life gets a little bit more real and we have a little bit more responsibility, or if it's just you know like financial burdens, we have to go and find somewhere else. So just think for a moment, just experiment with me, because all right now all of us in our heads are going, that's not me, one year, no way. But, Imagine if it was. Imagine if you just had a year and a half in the very space that you are in. How would you spend that year and a half? Would you do it being stressed out about about career, about money, about all the stuff that that you can get blocked by? Would you do it uh, just constantly going different places or doing different things? Would you spend it in a way that's wise or would you spend it in a way that's just frivolous? I think so often, We can can be in these spaces and in these little moments in life and we can have our head down the whole time because that's the comfortable position. Because to open ourselves up to real relationship or to open ourselves up to like, like I actually want friendships that are gonna last here, I want something lasting out of this can be very painful because we're vulnerable in that moment. We're putting our cards on the table. This is who we are, right? So how do we put down roots in a place like this? How do we actually begin to be still and to stop going, 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 going? Because we all this fear. It's like we think that our life is a bicycle. And if we don't keep pedaling, we're going to fall over and likely die, right? So if we're not constantly filling our calendar with things, if we're not constantly moving up in the ranks in our job, if we're not constantly checking off the boxes that we think we need to check off before we're this age or that age or whatever, what happens when you get there? (laughs) When all of the boxes are checked, when everything feels good, you're going to get there, and you're going to look around, and you're going to go, whoa. I actually missed what was there the whole time. And it's awesome that I'm here, but what about all that time I spent in fear, living in fear? I think that stillness is the only thing that can actually get rid of that fear. Because when we're still, this is when God fights for us. When Moses is on the bank uh, of the the Red Sea, it's actually called the Reed Sea, by the way, if anyone didn't know that. That, that, that Everyone calls it Red, but really it's Reed. Anyway, uh, they're on the bank, And the Israelites are freaking out because they've just been freed from slavery and and there's just this uproar. What are we going to do? We're being chased by an army behind us. There's this body of water in front of us. And Moses turns to the crowd and all he says is, if you only be still, the Lord your God will fight for you. Because this is what happens. There is a part of your brain, it's the oldest part of your brain, and we call it the lizard brain. What happens with the lizard brain is when something jumps out at you or startles you or someone cuts you off or whatever it is and you react just like jerk reaction, which is, again, brought us a long way. You're operating on a purely reactive level. You are not operating in a space where your brain can make rational decisions that are actually gonna make a difference in your life. You're reacting in a way that's going to save your life. So when we're when we're in a place of fear, in a place of anxiety, and we're trying to make major life choices, oftentimes those choices are going to be really muddy because we're not just simply being still and letting the Lord, our God, For us, and I was trying to write this this week. A number of uh, ironic things happened. One, I read a book called "In In Praise of Slowness." It's a beautiful book, uh, just about how to live your life in a more slow context. Now, I had to read this book within a week's time, so I put it on Audible at three times speed. So I was listening to this man telling me to slow my life down at three times speed, going like, "Yeah, I think I got that. Got that. Write that down really fast." Um, The other ironic thing was, I was just, I was. I was just, some of these sermons flow really easily, some of them are like a fight to get out, and I was just fighting. It's like Thursday, and that's when panic sets in for me. It's like I don't have any idea what I'm gonna be talking about right now. I'm freaking out. Uh, and my little puppy keeps coming up and just like, like he'll, if I'm working at my desk, he'll just kind of waddle up and he just sits and it, I'll know it's coming so I'm like I probably got like two good minutes here before he like starts to freak out and then he'll just sort of swat me on the knee and then swat me again and then swat me again and then it turns into a jump and then it turns into a leap and then it turns into barking and I'm like fine, let's go outside. <laughs> so I had to leave it, right, I was fighting with I had books open, and I was studying, and I was like trying to think things through, and I had to leave it. And when I left it and took Baloo on this walk, and I had nothing, no earplugs, nothing in my, just, just being present, just walking around the block, that's when it all hit me. I went, oh. And you all know this phenomenon. When you leave it, you often find it. When you're working and grinding out a problem and you just can't seem to find a solution, oftentimes it pops in in the mundane moments of life. It pops in when you're like making coffee in the morning. Or even better, uh, when you're in the shower, the most powerful time for the most beautiful thoughts in life to arrive. Uh, Let's read a couple of these. These are shower plots uh, pulled from Reddit. Just thoughts that come to you as you're in the shower. If I touch my phone in the right places, a pizza will show up at my front door. (laughs) Gorillas don't know any bodybuilding techniques, so we have probably never seen one at full potential. (laughs) I wonder what my dog named me. (laughs) And then finally, your stomach thinks all potato is mashed. So <laughs> the greatest sort of epiphanies in life can happen in the most mundane moments. But what it takes is actually an active thing to say, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to be still here. We can, we can fill our calendars up. Here's a, just a quick kind of throw out like little freebie. If you're scheduling things to such a degree that you can't have any flexibility, consider scheduling in nothing. And that is kind of the idea of Sabbath, but just consider like scheduling in a block of time where you just say, no, this one's set apart, and I'm not going to do anything. No one is going to control this part of who I am. This is what's going on. And that's actually a very biblical idea. In the tradition that we sit in right now, and we don't talk about it enough, The Jewish tradition takes this very seriously, and for some reason, us Christians kind of left that by the wayside and said, like, yeah, well, I mean, Sabbath is, it's there, but I mean, don't worry about it. You got to get that project in, and it's Sunday night, so just grind the gears, right? But the truth of the matter is, Sabbath and stillness and rest is built in for a reason. When God creates the world, he does six days of creation, of just like, just straight up, like, I'm working for six days to create this whole world. And then on that symbolic seventh day, he rests. He looks around, and he says that all is good. Notice, we don't teach the creation account as just six days. We teach the creation account as seven days. And that means that without rest, there is no creation. Without actually pulling back and saying, I'm going to be still, and I'm not going to do anything, There is no movement. There is no creation. Creation happens out of chaos. The the water separating the earth from the land, this idea of like it was just chaos. It was just like moodiness. It was just craziness. And God forms beauty out of chaos. But that only works if at the end you rest and you look at what you've already done when it's enough and say this has been enough. If you were growing up in the ancient Jewish tradition and you went to school, uh, when you went to school, the first scroll or book of the Bible that you would, you would read, and this happened up until a h- couple hundred years ago in the Jewish tradition, the first thing that they would teach you was Leviticus. Now, if you've ever opened up a Bible and turned to Leviticus, you probably spent about two seconds there and went like, Whoa, this is not for me, <laughs> and moved on, right? Because Leviticus is, is law. It's God's contract with Israel. So, and like any contract is immensely boring to read, right? So you open it up, and you see all of these laws pertaining to like who stole my goat, and then you can do this on the Sabbath, but you can't do that on the Sabbath. But Leviticus actually holds the most information and the most instruction on this day of rest out of anything else. And there's a reason that they would teach this first, because the idea that rest is built in needs to happen if you come from a culture that was enslaved Previously. As God takes these people out of Israel, they have been enslaved for generations, which means there's a lot of PTSD going on, there's a lot of craziness going on. You have to learn how to teach these people to actually live a normal, thriving human life. And how do you do that? How do you teach people who have been regimented and controlled, and every moment of their day was forced labor or forced into something? They had no say or choice in what they did. How do you teach them to think for themselves? And the answer in that was stillness, was rest. Because Sabbath is the tool that God uses to tell you that you are not a slave to anything. That the powers that want to take advantage of you, that want to use you, that want to burn all your fuel up, that they don't get the last word. That you are actually the one in control. And God says that very plainly uh, in the Psalms in terms of being still. At the end of Psalm 46, he says this, He says, he makes wars cease to the ends of all the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. Now, we will often, that little bumper sticker line there, verse 10, uh, gets gets on the back of cars and all that good stuff, but it's taken wildly out of context. He says, be still and know that I am God. And that's beautiful enough. Uh, But I think if we unpack the entire Psalm, Psalm 46, there's actually a beautiful context behind why God says that. Notice that this is the only place, and we'll read through the whole thing, but this is the only place where they're quoting God. They're saying all these magnificent things about what he does and how he acts and who he is as a person, but this is the only time where they're quoting, where they say, he says, be still and know that I am God. And this is where we're going to have to talk about cosmic geography and chaos monsters, which is going to be super fun. So let's go into Psalm 46 from the very top. It says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with surging. So we can pause right there. So basically, when's the last time you saw a mountain fall into the sea? <laughs> I would, I would wager you have not seen that in your lifetime. What's happening here is that uh, the Israelites believed in a sort of universe, and that this was their rational thought process behind how do you explain the fact that we're here, and how do you explain the fact that rain falls from the sky, and that there's water around us, and that we're on Earth. And what it looked like was called cosmic geography. Sorry, I'm going to skip around here. Alex, do you have the picture of like the three-tiered? OK, so this is a three-tiered system, and this would have been the way that they actually understood what the universe looked like, right? First of all, remember, you're on the Earth, and that's all there is, because they didn't really understand the cosmos. They saw stars, and they understood that. But they didn't really understand it. Like, they thought they were the center of the universe, and they didn't really think much beyond that. But here's what they thought. They thought water, right? The first line in the creation narrative is that God separates the land from the, they let there be light, and then separates the land from the sea. And so what they thought is, obviously, everything is water, And we are floating on this disk. You might have heard the phrase pillars of the earth. That would be the pillars that are holding up this little floating disk that we are now on. And everything else around us is chaos and water. And beyond that, uh, everything in here is dangerous and unknown. So, water was super scary to these folks because what do you, you can't, we didn't have any scuba equipment, you couldn't go down. So, when you're in this moment, you're literally peering into the abyss, going like, what the heck could possibly be down there? And on top of that, You have moon, sun, all that, stars, all that kind of stuff. The heavens were above, but before you got to the heavens, there's another layer of water, which is why when you would stare up and water would occasionally fall from the sky, you could rationalize that and say, oh, the dome is leaking, right? And then if the dome leaked too much, oh no, we have a flood on our hands, right? But all of this was controlled by God in their minds. He He would allow it to rain. He would allow it to stop. Today, we, we sort of work that into the scientific narrative. But whatever rationale you're using, these people had a worldview. And right now, we can look at this and say, wow, that's completely like, ridiculous. I can't believe they came up with that. But imagine, if you're trying to get at this stuff for the first time, this is the worldview that's passed down to you. This is the way that you actually physically view the world around you. And so, yeah, we look at this and we say, no, that's, that's not correct. We've been up there. We understand that there's not a layer of water that you go through. Uh, but they did not know that. But in the course of this entire psalm, where they're talking about mountains falling into the sea and the pillars of the earth and all this destruction, and then God speaks into it and he says, be still and know that I'm God. Please notice, this is very important for us as Christians, and especially in, in the church today where we live. God isn't trying to solve their problems about the way that they view the world. The fact that they're looking at it like this is not what he's speaking into. He's not worried about their detailed view of how the world works and clicks and all that kind of stuff. Literally, the answer for them is, be still and know that I am God. Which means, if the psalm proves anything, that stillness is actually the only weapon against ignorance. It's to say, be still. As long as you're trusting me, as long as you are in, remaining in me and seeking earnestly, you're going to find the answers. But he doesn't come in with some big slideshow and tell you, actually, this is how it works. In the 1960s, we're going to shoot a rocket up there and you're going to to see this for the whole first time. No. He just says, I'm going to love you right where you are, and I just want you to be still and know that I am God. And this... Brings up an amazing story of a prophet uh, who had to learn to be still for the very first time. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Elijah, and he comes in in 1 Kings uh, and 2 Kings a little bit, but uh, he comes through, and Elijah is this really kind of a rock star prophet. And a prophet was someone uh, who heard from God and enacted God's vision for the world. So they would come in, and they would come into the scene, and they would speak truth, or they'd speak God's truth into what was happening. And oftentimes, God's truth is very uncomfortable. So these prophet people were not the most well-liked individuals on the planet. So Elijah came in, uh, and he comes into this kingdom, and he realizes that all these people are worshiping this other deity named Baal. And he says, that can't, that can't happen. I need to change this. Like Israel has to come back to God. And so there's this huge battle account, and there's fire that rains down from the sky. We don't have time to get into all of that. It's a fascinating story. Read 1 Kings. It's wild. Uh, the fire comes down, and they win this huge battle. And then Jezebel, uh, the, the leader or the, the queen of this, this nation, looks and, and sees that this is Elijah's fault. And she goes, I am going to kill you. You better get on the run. And Elijah takes that, and he goes, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. So he packs his bags, and he goes about 100 miles south and finds himself at Mount Horeb, which is what we talked about last week where Moses was. Later named Sinai, we're still not sure if they're actually the same one, but most scholars believe that it's later named Sinai. So he gets to Horeb, uh, and he's on the run. He's on the run. He's fleeing for his very life, and he goes through the wilderness, and he finds himself miles and miles away from home, from anything, seeking refuge, because he realizes that even though God could send fire down and he could win this large battle, somehow Elijah's life was still in danger even though God can do all this miraculous stuff and like move through the world, my life is still absolutely in danger, so I need to flee. And not only that, I need to flee to a holy place, because I need some answers about what is going on. And so he finds himself at the base of Mount Horeb, uh, and God speaks to him like this. Or actually, a messenger speaks to him like this. Oh, nope, sorry. We, you can skip yeah, the rest of the psalm. My bad. It's going to be the next chunk of text. Perfect. Okay, this is the Lord speaking. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain. Oh, no, I think there's one before that, Alex, sorry. Is there? Boom. That, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, there it is. Uh, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. So pay attention to the fact that it says the word of the Lord came to him, because it's going to be important later. Uh, We can go to the next one there, Alex. Uh, And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Just picture that scene. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mountain of the cave. Then, it, oh, sorry. Are those? Okay, we'll pick up from there. A great, powerful wind comes, a huge blast of fire. These are all where Elijah is expecting to see God. The Lord's going to pass by. Ooh, this is going to be big. There's a wind that smashes through a mountain. That's like, that would cost a lot in CGI to recreate. It. That's a huge thing. And then fires. But that's not where God was. This translation says a gentle whisper. In a lot of other translations, it says a still, small voice. A still, small voice is where Elijah actually experiences God, actually finds him, and realizes, oh, this is where he's been all along. And with that, I think our text is all messed up, but basically what happens is uh, the Lord then speaks to him, not a messenger, not the word of the Lord, but the Lord speaks to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? So The question is asked twice, what are you doing here? And then he says, okay, I'm going to show you what I'm all about. And then he shows him what he's all about. And then he rephrases the question and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And in a very, like, classic biblical way, Elijah gets it wrong. And he says the same thing he said before. But after that, God says to him, Elijah, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Now that you know this about me, now that you've experienced that stillness, I want you to go back the way that you came. There's a return in this story. I think oftentimes when we experience a big epiphany or a giant sort of experience of God or something miraculous and amazing, our go to thing is that we need to go. We need to move forward. But God's word to Elijah here after he experiences this stillness is now that you know this, I need you to go back to where you came. And I need you to go back without that fear that your life is going to be taken away. I need you to go back and be still and know that I am God. That's the stillness debacle in our culture and in our lives, is that are we willing to actually be still and then not have that cause some giant, oh, yes, I should take this new career, I should go on that cruise, or I should go to this, but actually return to our daily lives and bring that with us. To bring God's peace with us into our daily lives and return to the way things have always been. To return to the way things should have been. To live without fear. I've told this story a couple times, but I used to. Um, <laughs> I, used to I, I, uh, I had a period in my life where I had a huge faith crisis. And it had to do with a lot of different things. Uh, but basically it culminated in a really dramatic moment where uh, my wife Chelsea found me underneath my my desk, basically in like a fetal position, like just staring like I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And this is not good news because I was in seminary and this is, I I got no other skill set, guys. This is all I got. (laughs) Uh, She looked at that and then then it just progressed and I just kept thinking, I don't think I believe any of this stuff anymore. I just can't. I can't rectify the hurt that I'm seeing the church doing to people with uh, who God's supposed to be and what that's supposed to be about in my life. I don't see Jesus in this. Uh, And so One week, I walked into a a little local church was meeting uh, back behind our apartment at the time. And it was a Sunday night service. And I was just walking around the block. And I just decided, you know, I'm I'm just going to step in to the service. I'm going to give this one last shot. I'm going to worship. And if if something happens, awesome. If it doesn't, it's just confirmed all all my fears. So I walk in. Uh, and I immediately, I was raised as a pastor's son, and there are no more critical people than pastors. Anyway, uh, I walk in, and I start critiquing, like, oh, well, the music is terrible here. And, like, oh, look, I look at all the decor, and, like, oh, the slides are off. All stuff, you know, we deal with here. Anyway, um, all, everything is, is I'm pulling it apart brick by brick with all my cynical power. Uh, and then at the end of the service uh, the pastor who was there uh, later became a great friend of mine but I told him straight up I was like the sermon was bad that day Anyway, uh, the sermon ends uh, and he says you know what today we don't do this often but we're going to come up and we're going to take communion Um, and so I did my my good church boy thing and I walked up and I took uh, communion and as I took communion something broke down inside of me and I realized as I came to the table that this is a table that understands hurt people. This is a table that's all about a man who was hurt, who was put to death, who was crucified. By the religious order of that time and by the government of that time, it knows how church can hurt people. And I realized this is not a God issue for me. It's a church issue, and thank God... Because that's something I've grown up in, and that's something I feel like I could have a hand in shifting. That's something that I can physically do, and I felt myself return with newfound vigor and just excitement to go back in to the institution that I had written off because i experienced stillness at the table. Alan Watts has this beautiful quote where he says, any muddy water is best cleared by simply leaving it alone. <laughs> to let that sediment sink to the bottom so that we can see clearly again and say, I will return to what I'm supposed to be doing. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, this space and the fact that you, uh, you give us space to come to the table. You give us space to experience Your stillness, your peace, and how we desperately need to hold on to that. Amen.